Hi, I'm Michaela Loach. And I'm Rebecca. And this is the Yikes Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Yikes podcast, the podcast about all the things that can make us yikes. Um, A lot of climate chat, a lot of justice chat, um, all of that kind of vibe is what we talk about on this podcast and today's episode is particularly about COP and COP26. What is COP? That's what you'll find out in this episode. And to talk about that, we have the brilliant Fahana Yamin um, come and speak to us about COP, what it is, all of that jazz about her career as an international climate lawyer, as someone who has been a key part of the climate negotiations from a UK perspective and from um, also a small islands perspective and global perspective. Um, she's someone who's helped write a lot of the leg- legislation that happens around COP. She's been to a huge number of COPs. She's a very well-qualified person to be talking to us about this um, and has a load of insights um, from her career to share with us all yeah and yeah it it was such a wonderful episode to record with her uh we can't wait for you guys to learn more about cop as cop is like so close and uh we are also doing a little bit of a call of action at the end so if you do want to join us either in glasgow online uh around you know a little bit more of like the activity side outside of cop then uh you'll also learn more about that yeah Yeah, and definitely get involved with COP26 Coalition at COP in Glasgow, but also wherever you are based. Um, You can check them out by just having a wee Google. And yeah, just enjoy this episode. So, Fahana, we are so excited to have you here on the podcast. Um, Could you just start out by introducing yourself and your work to everyone? Yeah, um, I'm Farhana Yamin and I trained to be a climate lawyer and I qualified in 1991, so 30 years ago. And uh, I've been mainly working as an advisor to small island states in the climate negotiations. And I've also then worked in philanthropy and as a sort of strategist and I'm an academic. And uh, I've recently become much more of an activist, you know, um, at adapt to my CV. Yeah, I feel like you have so many different hats, um, so many different, like, incredible things that you're doing and, and also different, like, kind of streams within the same movement, within the climate movement. I feel like you've approached climate from so many different perspectives. Um, yeah, well, basically, here's the secret. My base knowledge is really the same and, you know, quite boring. Uh, well, not boring, but, you know, it's the same knowledge. Yeah, I was about to say, not boring. But then I sort of change (laughs) clients or move into a different sort of issue area. Uh, And that's what's different. And that's, I feel, is, you know, quite diverse. The number of groups or organisations that I've worked with is much bigger than maybe many others. But the consistent sort of thread is I've I've kind of done my advocacy and work with developing countries and grassroots NGOs but I then I've got I've had it funded by loads of cool people like philanthropy or you know academia or think tanks or on my own or yeah so um, and I think it feels different for me the last few years because I kind of rejected a lot of what I was doing before and joined like social movements XR Fridays for Future mm. you know Parents for Future and kind of went back a little bit to my eighteen year old self 
which was out there at Greenham Common and did go and rock against racism marches and was a feminist and joined, you know, all these things. And I, I sort of had kind of put all of that activism in away. Wow. That's so interesting. Like you say that you kind of like reflected also like on your own work and yeah, I guess maybe in like a critical or like self-assessment way and kind of like redirect your outlets and how you do your work and and stuff that sounds yeah especially I guess if you've been doing this work with so many different groups and over like a period of time then that must be quite interesting but also maybe daunting to look at your own work and be like oh I'm going to change now to maybe more activisty again or more you know yeah I mean I I I think it comes across like that but it's actually a really you know, my body basically shut down. I was, I was burnt out. I was exhausted. I felt a failure after 2016. It was also, you know, we had in this country the Brexit referendum, which was crushing, you know, mm. to hear and see this society that I was very much a part of reject and be so xenophobic, be so anti-Muslim, to see Trump being elected, to see the rise of racism, you know, vociferous racism so deeply in our political systems at the highest level. I think that's what took me back, you know, took me out of mm. the world and this storyline that I had that we were making sort of progress. Um, and, you know, Trump withdrew from Paris, the whole of what we'd worked for, for the last, you know, um, Yeah, the, this this third treaty, you know, I have them here. I always have them, all my treaties here. Um, so it's like one treaty per decade, right? So there's the 92 Convention, which is this battered one. This is the Kyoto Protocol, 97. And so we spent like 30 years, I've literally spent 30 years of my life negotiating these frameworks for them to be just ignored and tossed aside and you know, disregarded, you know. Um, so that, that really led me to reevaluate and rethink. Um, and I sort of retreated from the world. I think I had to retreat. I was physically, mentally exhausted. Mm. And I was really um, not, not in a good place. Uh, my mum, my dad and my older brother, who was older by, me, by one year, all died very suddenly. You know, one year, one year, one year, one year after each other. So from... 2013, 2015, 2017, they, you know, they died in a short period of time while I was in this very intensive, um, yeah, flying around the world, saving the world. But, you know, half my family died in the meantime and I never had time to grieve. So I think a lot of that, mm. you know, personal grief, feeling a sense of loss, feeling a sense I'd wasted my professional life doing stuff when I should have been at home with the kids and my family, you know, really hit me quite hard. So it was mm. a forcible re-evaluation. And then along came all these movements that I became a lot more aware of who were deeply critical of what we'd done and were like, you guys have done nothing, you know, it was the younger generation. And they were sort of right. I felt like, oh, my God, they're absolutely right. What can I say to them? In the end, I feel nature really saved me and reconnected me. I, I rediscovered I was... Yeah, become a lawyer to to protect nature. I was never in nature. I was always in these, you know, smoke-filled rooms and UN basements and windowless <laughs> offices and at my desk. Oh, gosh. So, 
So yeah, there's a lot of uh, reevaluation personally of how um, my work and my ideals, my values, you know, how could they sit alongside each other? Yeah, and along came then, you know, you know, a much younger generation asking us tougher questions and saying, "You didn't do enough on this and this, and why are you still saying this is a success when it obviously doesn't work?" So yeah, that was really what led to the reflections. Yeah, wow. There's that's like there's a lot that you've been holding like all at the same time. I think a lot of people can have fragility in those situations. Do you know what I mean? If if you've been working on something for a long time and you're having these people come out and criticize it and say all these different things, I think it's human nature to like break in those situations to not know how to to deal with that. Um I find it really inspiring something I think a lot of us can can learn from is is also how you've also gone into those spaces where the criticism has been happening and not only listened but like been part of that too and I think that that's yeah, super interesting. Yeah, no, th- thanks for saying that. I feel like, yeah, it is like a, a moment where, you know, it was it was tough hearing those critiques of, you know, the environment movement from Extinction Rebellion, from the early Greta, you know, the Greta in 2018, 2019 was, boy, that was like no holds barred. You know, there was like, you've done nothing. You know, it was like... And I was like, no, 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 we have done something, but it hasn't added up. So there was a part of me that was very mm-hmm. defensive and felt very under attack. And and I think actually now, two, three years on, we are we are able to see, and I think not just her, but many of the activists who came forward, you know, feeling complete with complete legitimacy that not enough had been done. They were quite sort of brutal about the role of, different NGOs and stuff that I'd worked with. I think there's a moment of understanding that actually we did a pretty good job. We tried what we could against this massive, massive, massive political corruption, hugely deep pockets, very strong vested interests who who outplayed us and outfunded us and outsmarted us on some occasions. But actually we did the same. We we you know with our more limited resources, mm. we, we did a pretty good job. None of these treaties that I've held up, they didn't campaign for them. They tried to kill every single one and they survived mm. and we're here and we're marching along and, you know, that gives me great hope and I feel like there's also, um, you know, why, why are we doing this podcast is because there's a great, I don't know, healing and connecting happening and, you know, different people recognizing that an intergenerational war is another divide and rule tactic you know Mm. and that's what it is it's another one where you know the young people get to blame the older ones and we don't change the system it's it's another as i said divide Mm. and rule tactic the working class versus Mm. you know uh, black and brown people you know men versus women all Mm. these Mm. sort of binaries serve in the end you know Mm. to 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 single out groups or organizations or age groups or demographics that are somehow to blame rather than the underlying systems of injustice that are to blame mm. so yeah i'm excited that you're interviewing me <laughs> that we have this yeah. yeah i mean we're super excited um because i think exactly what you're saying around like also this like intergenerational learning you know like from each other and like different people and different like everybody brings something different to the table and mm-hmm. You know, especially, I guess, like now in the in the lead up to COP, like, you know, you obviously have so much experience with uh, the Conference of Parties um, and, 
yeah, like, you know, this is something that we are so excited to like, I mean, also all of your work, but just, yeah, learn from you, you know, and also like you've been working on something for so long is, for example, for me, like, you know, like we talk about this a lot, like how do we prevent burnout? Like how do we as activists, but also people dealing with, you know, like campaigning and stuff like, you know, actually stay in these spaces for the long, for the long run, which like you've, we, you have been doing, you know? So, um, yeah, I think this like intergenerational exchange is like super important, but do you maybe want to like explain, like you've been referring to like treaties and stuff. Could you maybe, yeah, just like explain like what COP is, like what do you mean by treaties? What's coming up? Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah I'd love to. Yeah. No, the COP is an acronym and there's so many acronyms. We love acronyms in the climate you know, world. Um, and it simply stands for the Conference of the Parties, and it's the Conference of the Parties to the Climate Change Treaty. So actually, there's a different acronym for the meeting of the Kyoto Protocol Parties for the CMA, there's a, a CMP, and then there's a different COP, as it were, for the Paris Agreement. So, and each one of these COPs, as we call them for shorthand, is the institutional governing body is the governing body of the parent treaty or the successor treaties. And we simply now have simplified all of them in the last decade. We just call it COP because explaining that there are these three legal institutions working and meeting in parallel confuses everyone. Like people don't understand it. So we just say, you know, the COP is a governing body of this architecture and it has its legal mandate, which is, you know, here in the parent treaty, the Battered Climate Convention. And so it meets every year, uh, which is also mandated here. It cannot not meet every year. Countries have to decide if it's not going to meet every year, which they did do uh, last year because of COVID. So it meets every year. And that's really important for um, people to understand, because if you miss a COP, there will always be another one. There's always a, a preparatory meeting, which is uh, takes place in in mid-year, May, May or June. And the entry into force um, provisions uh, mean that our COPs are always in November or December, roughly. So they're always in that in that time period, and the and the preparatory meetings are in May and June. So in terms of phasing your life, your <laughs> rhythms, if you want to take part in this, you know. Yeah, don't don't be afraid to step back. Uh, and I think some of my um, best moments and insights and bigger pieces of work happened after I'd had a maternity leave or a leave. Actually, I could step back from this very intensive cycle uh, because apart from these two big meetings in May and June or November and December, you have a lot of preparatory meetings. You have a a New York circuit and a Geneva circuit, lots of workshops that are happening all over the world. And COVID kind of stopped all of that. So that's why we're, you know, quite behind. But normally in my life, I would take um, anything between, I guess, six weeks to two months of travel associated with these international meetings, including two and a half weeks at the club. Wow. So, yeah, it's really important to learn how to pace yourself, um, you know, year to year, you know, in terms of, um, yeah, like if you're in it for the long term, if you're there during two weeks, it's really important to give yourself time to rest. They're almost relentless now, these meetings. They used to be like a weekend and they used to be a bit more of a, 
like a proper working hours, <laughs> but not anymore, not for years. There's just like dinners, there are work dinners, the half day rest is on a Sunday, even that gets, you know, someone schedules an informal dinner that day and says, why don't we all go for a working informal lunch that day? And you think that's like the one day that we had to look at the sky or something. Um, so yeah, so, so issues about balance and pacing yourself and trying to make activism and your contribution on a human level sustainable and workable is pretty hard and obviously it's very very hard if you're a woman or if you're from a developing country you've flown in you know literally I've worked a lot with the Pacific delegates and to be honest and we can broadcast this so they would fly in it would take them 36 hours and three flights three international flight equivalents Mm -hmm. to get there so obviously it would take them like two days to reset their body clocks and, and really be alert. So often you're sort of like nudging the mm. minister or, you know, like having to sort of subtly wake them up and say, would you like coffee, minister, uh, to wake them up? <laughs> and just, you know, it's quite cruel, the process to, yeah. to your physical uh, health, let alone your mental health. Yeah. yeah, wow. I think there are so many things that I didn't even think about I think especially of like having to travel 36 hours. Also for people to be there and present there who aren't government ministers in the same way they are in the UK, where maybe one person has one role and in some other places it's like you have multiple roles and multiple things that you're having to do, but then you're mm-hmm. having to take this amount of time away from your home and your family and travel this far and to somewhere where it might have a very different climate as well. Like it's just... And language. So, and language. Yeah. Like there's, there's just so much... There's, there's just so much to unpack and there's so much that's involved there I think that I didn't even realise um, beforehand. Um, something that I'd also think would be really helpful to understand a bit more and like for, for myself and for others as I'm sure as well is like what the agreements that actually happen at COP, what do those actually mean? Like how binding are they? How not binding are they? Like if everyone's putting in this much effort from all around the world to be at this one place to, to have these negotiations, then I feel like it must mean something but then I then I also find often that it feels like sometimes not as much can come from them as as I would think if that does that make complete sense but I hope you get what I mean. (laughs) So the power of these decisions and these legal treaties come from the fact that they are voluntarily agreed and negotiated by the governments who then adhere to them because that is the system of international law it is a voluntary acceptance of the rules that you've created in very few cases are those rules already legally binding. States don't give over power, you know, power over to institutions in general that then make binding rules. They do certain, in certain cases, like the Security Council, you know, certain bodies have been given legal powers to make mandatory decisions that bind a country, uh, you know. uh, So we don't have that. So we have to agree all of these things by agreement, you know, and that agreement is torturous, especially in the climate change regime, because we don't have what's called an agreed rules of procedure for voting decisions. So in most normal organisation institutions, the powers to make decisions are very clear, like parliament or an organisation where a board, you know, like if you try and come to a consensus, if there's no consensus, you vote and the voting is majority rule or two-thirds or three-quarters in some cases. Mm. And that's it. You know, you get outvoted. You know at the end of the day a minority cannot block. 
So in the climate change treaty, and I have the rules of procedure, and these are from 1996, as I hold them up, um, the rules of procedure were bracketed around majority decision-making. So that's only one of the few rules that are bracketed. Everything else is not bracketed. They proceed on those basis. And basically that's because a number of very powerful countries realised what would happen and they have always persistently refused to be outvoted. They, you know, it's, uh, they have a massive procedural advantage. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, it was originally the OPEC countries that spotted this, and I have a personal grief about this because as a very young lawyer in one of my first meetings, I was asked how would we adopt a protocol which I'd put forward at that time on the behalf of small island states, and I said, oh, well we don't have rules of procedure for the adoption of this kind of decision. So it would be under the draft rules as they were then back in 1995. Uh, it would be by majority or two thirds, you know, and then they, the OPEC delegates paid and the fossil fuel lobbyists who advised them ran off. And then the next day they were in brackets and I felt like an idiot. I felt like a complete idiot. Mm. Like, why did I? Why mm. did I sort of draw attention mm. to that? So, I, I, you know, obviously they would have maybe come to that to that insight themselves maybe later on. But actually, they didn't. They yeah. hadn't at that time. So, to your question, like, how? What do they say? You know, they usually are about um, thirty to fifty decisions, depending. You know, adopted every year. They address all parts of. Uh, what needs to be done from a vote of thanks to setting out how we're going to count emissions, how we're going to review the reports, how we're going to fund uh, vulnerable countries, for example, how we're going to incorporate gender considerations, how we're going to look at just transitions. All of these are decisions that governments then negotiate what the hell they're going to do. And because they have to be adopted then in the end by agreement, that gives them enormous power because governments have agreed them they're going to then sort of comply with them but they also are often what we call lowest common denominator so the laggards can really sort of protracted in a very protracted painful way um, make sure that they have veto power and then there are very skillful ways that we found to sort of outmaneuver those laggards by naming and shaming them in public or bringing them out into the plenary or you know sort of maneuvering them side sideways you know, doing a sort of karate sort of special manoeuvre. Uh, but that's, that requires a lot of, you know, skillful diplomacy and a lot of um, mm. diplomatic patience, uh, patience <laughs> enormous endurance, patience, um, and sometimes sweeteners. So big countries can afford to buy out little countries to kind of stop them vetoing things. Mm. Like Turkey. Turkey's just been given this huge sweetener in terms of aid to actually ratify Paris. Um by countries because mm. it held out for like 20 years it wouldn't you know uh, mm. uh, and small countries don't have that they don't get to you know throw their waste around so they have to be a little bit more savvy and build coalitions and alliances and uh, they don't have the geopolitical clout and the financial clout to offer sweeteners you know often and why, mm. why am I talking about it is because I feel like at COP26 you know what countries especially vulnerable groups, um, those seeking justice really want, is is being silenced by all these behind behind the behind the doors secret deals, you know. 
stick mm-hmm. to this sort of agenda, stick to these talking points. We'll give you 50 million here or mm-hmm. we'll make sure that your project goes through over there, you know, and actually mm-hmm. the real ability and this moment of immense sorrow and the need for a huge reset, you know, isn't, might not happen because all these deals have been cooked up to try and essentially manage the agenda um, yeah, manage the agenda so that people won't bring up tricky, difficult issues. They won't try and get uh, the truth in those decisions that need to be said and the really tough decisions implemented. But, you know, laws do matter. You know, that's why there are armies of lawyers, armies of advisors. And that, you know, adds to the unfairness that you were talking about, Michaela, that some countries come with hundreds of delegates or, or at least one or two hundred. Mm-hmm. And each one is appraised and organised and it's got their file and all their talking points are all printed and highlighted. Literally, I've seen these. And other countries, you know, are able to send one person who's dealing with five other issues and, you know, mm. is does not have, you know, that support. Mm. Uh, so we try and sort of even that out in the best way that we can by banding together and negotiating together. Are you enjoying this podcast? Um, We really hope that you are. The Yikes podcast um, is able to happen mostly because of the financial support from our wonderful patrons on Patreon. Yeah, I mean, Michaela sounds like a super duper advertising capitalist girl, but actually we're two anti-capitalist babes in a capitalist world. And um, by you supporting like the show, um, it just generally sustains it. It allows us to like pay our guests that... Uh, now and then come on the show and it allows us to do you know much more community work and be able to support different charities and just generally you know make this thing happen yeah and if you don't know what patreon is because i think a lot of people might not know it is basically a platform that allows you to support creators or podcasts or different kind of groups that you really like um, and you can financially support their work directly um, and it kind of stops us having to rely on things like ads which are annoying yeah Um, (laughs) so on Patreon on the Yikes Podcast Patreon there are different um, tiers that you can subscribe to so they start from just £3 a month and then kind of go up from there Um, for the £5 a month one you get a bonus episode every single week um, which is just us chatting about a different thing that's just happened in the news or something personal about our lives Um, they're much more kind of intimate those episodes um, and we really enjoy making them we do Q&As as well over on the Patreon and it's just another kind of space that we can interact with you guys and we really love it and we're so grateful for our patrons who have made this show possible up until now and if you'd like to become someone who supports this podcast if you have the ability to do that um then you can check out our patreon in the show notes or just go to patreon.com slash the yikes podcast um and you can check out the different tiers there and sign up to support this show we thank you so much for your support so far and we hope that you're enjoying this episode I think what you're saying, like, especially about the value of it, is something that um, Tessa... So we had Tessa Khan um, on for an episode on climate litigation where we more talked about, like, climate cases. um, And we touched on the value of COP there. And she was just saying that it gives us something that we can hold the governments accountable for. Like, they've said that they're going to do this. So it means that we can have cases like we're seeing pop up everywhere where we are challenging the governments on things. I think that that's probably where... 
a huge amount of the value can come from. It's not, and that's what's probably difficult for people who put so much effort into making these things happen and then have people say, oh, COP doesn't actually do anything. And actually it does, it does a huge amount for getting, I guess, these companies, these com- companies, these countries to agree to. Sometimes the same thing. <laughs> to say yeah. that they, they, they will try and do something, probably might not in, in practice, but at least we can hold them to some sort of accountability. Yeah, absolutely. So very in a very short way, these these COPs, these annual moments are our check-ins, you know, where we where we get to assess progress. That's what the COP is meant to do every year, assess progress. They have a whole bunch of different reports that help them do that. And then if if the COP says we're on code red, everyone, you know, that is heard mm. by the media, by mm. corporates, by mm. business leaders, by everyone that that is code red is different to where just the scientists are saying it so the formal legal acknowledgement mm-hmm. of the science for example is one of these protracted you know negotiations because mm-hmm. you know that that statement that that we need x amount of gigaton reductions by x date typically that's always like a flashpoint in the negotiations just getting that acknowledgement because then that will stick People will use that as a benchmark. Courts will use it, you know, uh, progressive, you know, it's a direction that's set. So these these cops are not just there for governments. They are intense moment of international and national scrutiny. Um, And increasingly, that's why the issue of fairness, who participates, who can really be inside, who can really speak truth to power. And, and act on that is, is great. But, you know, litigation is always a very small, but it's a very compelling part. So I, I love I love litigation. I, I don't do as much of it because I just think the creation of the rules and then making sure everything is, you know, getting um, clearer, more transparent is sort of where I, I, I quite like working on, on that side. And the litigation lawyers, you know, that's a very specific in court. Mm-hmm. One case can often take, well, they often take three to five years. They often like are like half the negotiations of a treaty themselves. Some are faster, you know. But, um, you're doing one too, so well done. You're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I think ours is probably it seems to be one of the quicker ones. We'll see how long appeals and things take. But it, that's what's interesting to it's interesting to talk to also people who have different perspectives because you and Tessa like have very different perspectives in the work that you've done. Even though you are both lawyers who've worked in climate, and that's one thing that I think I really love about being able to have this podcast is get people's different perspectives on climate and doing work that is that all overlaps in some way but is also kind of different yeah yeah so uh, yeah no I love I love Tessa and I love the work she's doing and you know trying to expose and hold governments and other actors to account through the prism of a single decision a single act or a single omission Mm. is so sort of compelling and it can you know really radicalize and change things uh, but in the end, you know, that is a decision about a single act or a single case. And so you still need to go back to changing the system. So litigation mm-hmm. cannot change the system. It isn't really systemic. And I like systemic mm-hmm. stuff. I also like a blank canvas. So I like creating legal norms. I like drafting from afresh and seeing what's missing in this great canvas and sort of filling that in. And, and sometimes they're very sort of detailed, precise, 
meanings that you attach to one word and the you know that happens in a court like I'm I don't have as much patience to do that I like I like the broad brush sort of creative and the first part so you know you create laws you implement them and then you enforce them these sort of three steps and you know different people fit in different places and it's part of what you're saying you know there are so many different avenues and ways to be involved to engage to everyone's holding a piece of the jigsaw and you know we're all superheroes and we all have our little special powers you know Uh, yeah we're all we're all we're all there we don't we can't say it's just all about captain america or batman because there's like black widow and there's thor and you know there's the hulk and there's you know all the rest of it so yeah there are there are there are so many different talents and needs especially now that we all need Mm. to pile in there and use our special powers our special networks our special relationships of trust and the the legal roots Mm. are are many you know there's I think one of the most compelling things is you know this balance between should we seek punishment essentially and Mm. you know or should we should it's not either or obviously everything's both but there is a there is a part of me is let's Let's all do ecocide and get those polluters and get the people who've lied and get the people who are doing wrong. And then there's part of me is like, actually, we need to create a much, uh, we need to create the new law and the new fabric of society that isn't, isn't about this blaming, that it is a more positive vision. You know, it's what, what are the ideal laws that we would like? So, yeah, so you've got ecocide one, one end and you've got the rights of nature essentially at, at another end and they both overlap and they're both needed. Um, but different people do them, you know, different people do them. Some are really fired up by, let's get X on, you know. And I, so I go, I go, I flit in and out of them. So that's what I like uh, about my ability now. I can see I'm not tied to it. I'm not going to go around and say, oh, let's not do X on. Let's focus on the lights of nature. It's like, dudes, we all need all of these things. We need people who are creative and visionary. Mm-hmm. And we need to go after the egregious, you know, um, the egregious wrongdoers, you know, we have to, Mm. but it mustn't let us get in the way of, I think, healing, self-care and love and nurturing and creating a a lovely world, you know, yeah. Mm. I, yeah, I really love that because I, yeah, I I think I agree, like, it isn't about this binary, you know, and I guess also, like, we've said this a lot in this podcast um, of, like, the methods we are applying to shaping the new world will ultimately, like, shape the new world and, so punishment will therefore be carrying into the new worlds that we are building. Mm. And I think I totally like see this point of like, you know, like we need to hold them accountable and like fossil fuel industries shouldn't be existing and, and stuff. But I also feel like when I only focus on that, there's so much anger inside of me that where like I don't actually feel like I have even the ability anymore to create anything mm. that will be world building, that will be also just you know like that yeah I think there can be for at least for me like an avenue where I'm like I hold on to so much anger right now which is all super valid but if I only do this one thing for me like that isn't actually nurturing for any of us um Mm. and I'm probably also really unjust to others in the process so what you were saying of like not all of us having you know multiple roles but also like sometimes for yourself having different pathways and different outlets to create this you know change like between each other I think it's like actually something that's really beautiful and that like I've learned a lot um 
what you were saying earlier of like kind of like how nature you know is super healing and restorative like I think even just like for me like when I see like you know how different creatures work with each other and like you know like our non-human kin and like learning also like from that I think has like given me a lot of like insights of like I don't need to be like this doing this one thing you know like I can shape and shift and critique and create all of these things and Mm. um I guess that's what COP is also for and like we've talked a lot about like the negotiation side of things but there's like so much more around COP as well where you know people from all over the world gather either in Glasgow which is where COP is happening this year or in their local communities and there's so many different things that come together in this event that's like kind of overwhelming but also like really incredible um Mm. That was like a bit of a tangent. No, 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 it's not a tangent at all. And, um, you know, I did philosophy as one of my degrees. So so this whole debate, do the ends justify the means? And a lot of my life I've I've acted as if that's true. And now I feel Mm. that's really, that really sucks. That's not, that's not right. You know, in my professional life, and I think we're forced to make sacrifices all the time. We learn the language of trade-off and we learn this, we learn how to do this, you know, thing to ourselves, to our communities, you know, in our economy. But it's like, you know, your happiness is fine, you know, pursue it, go for it. And we've, we've incorporated this view so deeply in our culture. And it's not, it, it hasn't always mm. been there and it's not always in everyone's culture. That's why it's a philosophy class in the first place, you know, that it isn't always there. There's always been this debate, but actually our our culture forces us to to make trade-offs, to to reduce other people, other interests to a sort of zero-sum game where we are playing this game and the ends justify the means. And so I, I really, in my own personal life now, I'm partly feeling like the wisdom of other traditions, other philosophies, other peoples who do not put that primacy and that time pressure that Mm. comes with it and so that's also Mm. incorporated in many left and progressive and social movements who want like justice when do we want climate justice when do we want it now maybe you know they're willing to do anything and everything for it but actually i feel we can't use every means we have to spend far more time and effort building the, the the bridges bringing in the voices allowing space we if we're truly to create this better world then we have to spend a lot more time on the on the conditions uh under which it it evolves um you know rather than right we've got to get emissions reduced by 2050 let's let's get them all from you know this is in this sector this is how it makes sense and the cost benefit model um, whatever the cost is to the people who are impacted so i feel i feel like a lot of what you've said really resonates with me and what this moment is all about I feel actually this moment is not just a six-year update of the Paris Agreement it's a complete rewrite of the values and principles and assumptions that we want to bring going forth and Covid has massively accelerated that appetite and desire and that given us that opportunity to to really to really change and that's what I'm calling for at COP as well I've just published this manifesto for for justice at cop 26 and beyond and it sort of argues for that it's time for a justice reset you know where we fundamentally Mm. bring together our related demands and to put 
put our world on a very different pathway. Uh, and it's not just omissions have to be reduced. Actually, a lot of the very underlying principles of consumption, you know, have to be changed, of extractivism have to go, of seeing some people as written off and that's okay. So, you know, in my professional work, you know, a lot of small islands have been written off. They've been written off for centuries, actually. They're always like peripheral. Mm. They're always like saying, oh, well, you know, the Marshall Islands, which I used for, it's only, it's only 70,000 people. They could all go and le- locate in New Zealand or this indigenous tribe. Well, you know, they need development. You know, their culture is already archaic and archaic. It's already written off. Their entire mm. people, entire ecosystems, entire regions, entire countries have been written off in this way as, as not relevant, as the ends justifying the means and the means are you know involve sacrificing some interests some people and that that mm-hmm. you know it's a very it's an even longer rant than yours actually just being here so i feel like you know i feel like that moment has come when, i mean you are the guest on our podcast <laughs> just, you know so take up all the space because no, 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 you you are so so i i hope anyway i hope that this and that's the fact that this COP is happening in Glasgow, in the UK, in the mm. country that's launched and been the torchbearer of the Industrial Revolution, mm. of the progressive Enlightenment thinking, you know, half the philosophers who, who, who brought forth this world and justified it intellectually, half of them were Scottish, actually. And the, Sc- the, Sc- mm. the Scots mm-hmm. themselves were obviously oppressed and colonized as a nation and they're now seeking their independence they're seeking a new narrative they rely on oil still so they're in they're actually a sort of prism of all of the big things that we're we're trying to reset that we really have to to look at so i feel like glasgow in some way is for me personally that opportunity and it's also an opportunity where i feel it sounds very mystical maybe I just feel like there's so many different ways to tell the truth and to to hear the story and to amplify the story mm-hmm. of Earth and what it now needs. And actually, it's not all about the text, you know, these things that I've spent so many time in. We will have mm. artists and poetry. We will have sculptures. We will have ceremony. We will have rituals. We will have our creatives, you know, hold this moment and tell the truth. And some things... <clears throat> I'm trying to do, um, I know will be impossible to get in the text as as things stand now. And one is frankly an, an admission and an apology. So that, that at the moment, I hope the time will come. And we know now from other systemic injustices that happened, it may have taken 50 years, it may have taken the Pope 100 years. Eventually, there were apologies for the injustices whether it was child abuse, racism, slavery, you know, torture, so many institutions, so many people in the end, you know, the moment of reckoning, this justice was in some measure achieved, often too late for the people who were, who were its victims. But, but that legacy, that desire for um, justice in the end, you know, the, the families, the communities, the people who were impacted by the legacy. They're demanding that justice. They will never go away. And I feel like the quicker that Glasgow get its, gets its head around this 400-year cycle, which we can say goodbye to in a really good way and should, uh, the better we will bring 
this new world, you know, to, to bear. And the cop mm. can play a really important moment in that. It can bring this mm. healing. It can bring this acknowledgement. So, yeah, so I'm asking in this reset, you know, for there to be an acknowledgement that um, those who are still bearing the brunt of the historic and systemic injustices, that 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 there that simple fact is acknowledged. And often we put that in a preamble, but right now I want it in the decision. I want it to be the starting point of what we do. And this is what, you know, us we're all united around. That's what justice demands. That's what climate justice is, actually starting with the world and why it is the way it is and demanding that, you know, the fundamental principles of fairness dictate that, first of all, we stop creating new injustice. This cop shouldn't take any more decisions that result in yet more I guess it's also um, a fundamental like a foundation for reparations right like mm, mm -hmm. because once a, an apology is there like you actually have like legal ground to say like okay you accept that you have historically and still are impoverishing mm. and every, like you know all of these things I think it's, it's also like a really important part of like restorative justice like there has to be yeah. an acknowledgement of the harm that's caused in order for that mm -hmm. harm to be addressed and I think so often like we've seen it through loads of different harms throughout history that this lack of acknowledgement of the harm like allows that harm to perpetuate itself throughout generations even if uh, that harm is not being exhibited in the same way and so yeah, I think what you're saying is is like is really important I and mean, your proposal is really really important like I also kind of wanted to ask you for you what would justice at COP even look like like what does that look like from your perspective like if we could achieve climate justice at court i know that's not gonna happen but um, <laughs> what would that look like no no we're gonna have a jolly good go michaela right at at, at, <laughs> yes. at sort of dominating the narrative and sometimes you know we're quite savvy too we if we didn't get we didn't get net zero by 2050 in paris we pretended we did until everyone thought they never read it so they they now get it like this is what we need we will make justice the narrative that everyone adheres to and right now that's not the case so that's the big outcome that would be a success that more and more people accept that fairness is not a nice to have it's a fundamental and that centering those who have been already harmed is vital because without that you're perpetuating the, the wrongdoing you're perpetuating a model that excludes and diminishes and means you know, means that some people are, are left further behind. And, you know, we're trying through the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, through COP, through many other fora to, to get this understanding. And the COP is a as much a site for the establishment of that narrative, for it to take hold as anywhere else. It's ripe for that. So, and it could be in some nerdy language in that first decision one CP26, and it can be replicated and the procedural requirements to allocate resources, examine whether there are gaps, put, you know, uh, principles that respect fundamental rights of Indigenous people, such as free informed prior consent, which are there are practically another, another into our own decision making, the best of the procedural tools, centering, as I said, uh, those whose interests are not considered or excluded um, you know and creating legal mechanisms you know such as such as um, legal rights for nature such as 
Uh, you know, we mentioned Mother Earth as in, the, in the preamble, but actually we should give her legal standing and we should maybe have a, a champion who's the legal guardian, you know, speaks for Earth, actually, and speaks, you know, we have got platforms that create, um, we have got an Indigenous people platform, we've got pieces, but actually they're all a bit of patchwork and they're, they're too weak and we need and can have, you know, uh, a way in which we protect the interests of future generations, you know, much more actively than just requiring youth to come to a conference or protest in the street outside. You know, we we can give them standing, we can give them a seat at the table. And that's what I'm asking for And my nerdy legal hat then. It is like, yeah, let's create a different institutional structure where you have a fairer seating, you know, everyone is represented and then let let people have the resources and the, um, you know, get get rid of some of the vested interests. We shouldn't be at that table in the first place. You know, let's limit them. And I think we can get much further. Let's see how far we can get. I feel like there's a tremendous desire from so many different quarters to to unite our different, you know, from racial justice to gender justice to climate justice mm-hmm. to health justice to migrant justice. These are all part of the same desire to really transform a system which is weak and inappropriate and not protecting the majority. We are not the minority. And, you know, we've been minoritized and put in a box and put over there as, oh yeah, we'll deal with that later. Once we're prosperous enough, we'll deal with the inequities, you know, the same means ends thing. Once we're over there, once we've recovered, we'll deal with these issues. Right now, let's get everyone back to work as normal Uh, uh, yeah I'm just going with all you know well it's a guns blazing but you know it's maybe we have to come up with less uh nicer less warlike metaphors (laughs) it's really it's really hard to find metaphors that are not all about racing and cars and fuel and (laughs) no but so so much of our language especially like sayings actually come from world war ii and like industrialization like Mm. And there's like some big advocates and they're like, we need even new language to shape better futures because all of our language mm. is rooted in, you know? And so, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I get I that. The, the other day, well, it was a, I used this, let's kill two birds with one stone, you know, because we know what that means. Like, but actually that's mm-hmm. a, what a horrible analogy, <laughs> what a horrible metaphor. Yes. So we've yeah. got to expunge all these, all these things and not see speed and efficiency with with you know the culture that is we're also very sight-based we've become a very sight-based seeing is prioritize over other senses and norms and the heart is very diminished um so yeah there's a big reset in language that we need as well yeah. mm. no, no definitely and i think um following on from kind of talking about what is cop and like what does it do and all of these kind of things around it it's now it's it'd be good to hear if you have anything that people could maybe get involved with or if there's anything during this time I think from my perspective I'm like you know the microscope is being put on the UK which has been as you said like one of the biggest powers causing a huge amount of harm especially when we talk about colonialism which gave the blueprint for extractivism and especially as the UK is now trying to approve new 
oil fields <laughs> immediately after the IEA's announcement that we cannot have new investment in in oil and gas and and the UK and many com- many of these companies are based in the UK that are causing a huge amount of harm and are trying to get and many global south countries kind of hooked on um fossil fuel infrastructure um i think i'm seeing it's like the microscope's on here let's point out as many of these issues as we can but i was wondering if you had any kind of thoughts on on what an average person who maybe is not a lawyer and or not a delegate um could do around this time so i think i'm the opposite of the microscope i'm the hubble telescope you know there are just different lenses right so you're going into a very granular examination of the UK. And I feel if you use the Hubble telescope, maybe you would see humanity's journey into a very different era. And I think ordinary people understand, especially after COVID, there's a yearning for a very different way of living and treating each other. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there is, you know, sort of a such an economic apartheid now happening with, you know, half our fellow, you know, neighbours in this country as well as abroad, you know, going into an even worse form of uh, economic deprivation, poverty, you know, as a result, partly of all these climate change, nature crisis, economic crisis, COVID, debt crisis, you know, these entire countries coming begging to the, to these powers that are sitting with, you know, the resources that they built up over 300 years. I I feel like the zeitgeist is what is changing. From my Hubble telescope, Mm. I see that let's just get rid of the zeitgeist. And no one can say, oh, yeah, this one meeting ended it or didn't. That's a a sort of thing that historians later will say. But I think that moment is Mm. here. I really feel it. I feel like, you know, COVID showed us so blatantly we weren't in the same boat. Some people could Mm -hmm. relocate, went to their second homes, had really lovely time baking and, you know, being in nature. And All the billionaires went to their um, bunkers in New Zealand, which I didn't know was a thing until... (laughs) Yeah, they, they, you know, I just hope they're trapped there and the New Zealanders don't let them back. (laughs) So, no, let's... But like a lot of people, you know, the key workers couldn't do that. There There was the real world, you know, in which... Half the people were struggling. There were food Mm. banks, jobs, mental Mm. health pressures, you name it, uh, already in the gig economy. That's getting worse, uh, as we know. So we Mm. have a really big choice about what kind of society we want, what kind of economy we want, how much solidarity we want. And I feel like, you know, people are are torn. You know, they, they know the bigness of the moment. But I feel let's help, help and all of us step into you know, this this much better world that is possible and technologically it's possible, economically it's possible. Every, you know, every study proves that. Mm-hmm. But I think in our hearts we have to sort of follow that through. Um, and, I, yeah, I feel like that for me is what I'm trying to achieve, to make that, you know, uh, Aaron Titi Roy, you know, she said, you know, uh, another world is possible. Sometimes on a, on a good day, I, I I can hear her. On a quiet day, I can, I can hear, hear her breathing. breathing. Yeah, I quote that all yeah, the time. Yeah, <laughs> but here, Michaela, she said that in 2003. So I'm like, hey, dudes, we're, we're more than breathing. We want to be really loud. We are the, mm-hmm. we are the beautiful yeah. world that is weaving and connecting the loveliness that you saw of, you know, local food banks, neighbourhoods coming together. And this, in answer to this, you know, there's the floodgates 
argument used against, you know, um, sending more aid or helping. And actually, we want to open the floodgates of abundance and and joy and gifting Mm. because nature can provide. The world has everything Mm. that we need. We have enough water. We have enough food. We have enough oil. And we have to reject the narrative of, you know, fear and walls and exclusion and competition and survival of the fittest. You know, they all go together. The ends justify the means. That's all double down and build Mm. legal borders and walls to exclude now these people who are coming. Actually, we need to really, really reject that. Um, And whatever we can Mm. do at big moments like these, and these are like the largest summits that we ever have now in the global calendar, the, the UN COPs are the, you know, larger even than the General Assembly meetings that we have every year. Um, so they're big moments. So let's use that to shine a torch, shine a light also on the the very big scale, the epoch changing moment that I think that we're in. And, um, you know, I, I feel like, like a, lot, a lot of the Indigenous, um, you asked me what we could do. Uh, and I think, you know, go and research and find and support the Indigenous uh, uh, people who are coming who have borne the brunt of this cycle still are bearing the brunt of this cycle still mm. trying to maintain um, a joyful loving guardianship relationship with the land and biodiversity and protect it and yet who have survived you know three four hundred years of trauma get behind them um, and you know with that will come you know, a sense of also uniting all the different movements whether it's gender justice, racial justice if you can't see you know, the the historic um, and systemic justices right now, you know, get behind any of them, but especially get behind the ind- Indigenous people who are coming to the UK to demand justice, to be seen, to have, you know, a, a voice and a say and uh, to, to end the cycle of injustice, that's what they're coming for. So that's, that's what I would say, get behind them and come and see this moment mm-hmm. is, you know, um, for what it is, you know, come and come and make um, what you want. I mean, I've had like quite a lot of battles with a number of people, in, including in the UK, including like you know with some of the philanthropic community. It's like, you know, you're you're. It's only Glasgow's only a four and a half hour train ride away from you. You know, here you are, like not going to this enormous thing. Just just come and listen. Come and listen to mm. all those people who are making journeys for thousands of miles. Come and listen to them. Come and honour them. Bear witness. Do all of that. Don't don't think, oh, I've got to rush around and give a speech and do a whatever. Just just come and mm-hmm. be part of this moment, you know, and that in itself will be an act of service, be an act of humility, be an act of the kind mm. of culture that we want where people feel it's okay to be a listener as well as a doer. Anyway, I've done a lot of talking for someone who, you know, is preaching that. So No, yeah, I'm, I was going to say, like to add on that, if people can come to Glasgow, there's lots of uh, things to get involved in. Uh, yeah, like, like you were saying, listening. There will also be workshops, interactive sessions, like to learn, to create. Uh, There will be marches, but also there's this call for mass mobilization for climate justice for around the world. So like wherever you are based, you can either join a local hub or uh, create one, for example, like COP26 coalition. They're building like this network where we can like link up and you can also join the sessions that are happening in Glasgow online. And, you know, there's like so many ways to start a conversation in your local community around how we link our movements, how we link 
each other, like how we build coalition. And I guess that's um, like maybe linking to our final question around like beyond COP, like, you know, how do we use COP and like the, whatever comes out of COP to hold our governments accountable? Like a little thing, you know, to like give us on our way beyond COP going forward. Yeah, I would say absolutely hold everyone, whether it's governments, corporates, city councils, every, you know, holder of power, you know, hold them to account for the change they need to make because everybody needs to make massive changes and see how you can support that change. You know, no one's holding a magic wand, but everyone can do this together if they do their piece, if they act in concert. So I think, you know, come back home and pursue, you know, with rigour that agenda. You know, have a little break, obviously, you know, we'll, we'll be tired and we need to rest. But actually as I said, get ready for COP27, for COP28, um, because those are the COPs that also must deliver. Every COP now is as significant as Paris. Every single year, every quarter is mm-hmm. is important. And get involved. Uh, and what has nourished me and what I don't want to let go of is, you know, I've started doing a lot more local activism and in my own community. I want to see the changes in my high street, in my town. I, I feel that is just an important a site as going and campaigning nationally or doing these big global mm-hmm. things. I, I've, you know, I've, I know that I'm a bit older and I travel the world and I've had that, you know, amazing set of experiences, but I feel it was a mistake to prioritise the global and the national over the local and community. And we're seeing, as I said, this huge desire and appetite and a positive one to, to live better within our own communities and if we did that, we'd all be much more, um, we would have far fewer carbon miles, we would have local jobs, we would have more conviviality, mm. we would have better, uh, a, a better way of living um, as well. So, yeah. Yeah, that's so wonderful. That is such a brilliant, I think, way to end this episode because that is incredible advice. And I think we could all be doing both the local and the global and definitely connecting with your community that's right around you is a really great place to start. And then I guess connecting what are the struggles in your local community? How does that connect to a wider global struggle? And how can we make those connections is, yeah, is fantastic. So thank you so much for being on here, Fahana. Like it's been an absolute pleasure and I'm so, so glad we finally managed to do this. I wish we could have been able to do it in person, but um, we'll see you soon at COP. Yeah, so, we'll see you at um, soon. Not too long. <laughs> That's great, no. And for me, like, I've always been such a nerd about, like, I remember growing up, going to COP was like my, like, I've always wanted to do it. And like, even in my bachelor's, I was in Model United Nations. Like, I've been such a nerd about this. I think it's kind of changed now where I go to COP for the activacy side. But, um, so just hearing you also nerd about, like, you know, nerd out about this was like actually such a, it was so nice to hear. Wow. So yeah, thank you so much for coming. Oh, on I'm so, and, I'm, yeah, so, I'm thrilled. This. And like, I, as a, part of me is always like, can't wait. So cups are over because I know that's also a rhythm of rest and winter <laughs> is a moment of rest and reflection and recuperation and regeneration and that's what we all must do but it's just an absolute pleasure to be on this podcast I can't wait to listen to it so thank you and to see you uh, hopefully Michaela in, in Glasgow very soon yeah very soon see you then Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yikes. We really hope that you enjoyed it. Fahana is just a top babe and someone who 
has just been doing this work for so long and done so much work for all of us. And it's really mm. great to like just hear her insights and her perspectives. I really, really like loved, and we have to get her back to learn even more about like mm. kind of like her journey, like how like mm. she's been, you know, like, yeah, in so many different spaces. Like I find it so, so inspirational and it was so insightful. So yeah, I'm really, really pumped for Cup cop and just like mm. meeting everyone and just yeah i don't know i'm super excited to see actually what's happening um and yeah uh, so we hope you enjoyed that uh, episode get involved in local actions local community uh, and build this like mass mobilization for climate justice uh special thanks to finn um finny moed for doing all the sound magic of this podcast uh you can find him on instagram uh you can also find the yikes podcast on instagram at the yikes podcast Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to check it's the there. way that you never know the at it makes me laugh every time um, but you can follow us on Instagram at the Yikes Podcast and on Twitter at the Yikes Pod and um, it really helps the podcast out if you can give us a rating um, as of recording this episode Yikes is now a five star award winning podcast what? Um, not that that's why we're doing this but it's also very nice to get that um, so make sure that you keep giving us those five star ratings so that um, the trolls don't bring us down um, <laughs> <laughs> not that we've but, had um, any but okay no there have been there have been a couple one star reviews really? oh my gosh yeah no. they make okay. me laugh so much because they're just like shit podcast <laughs> anyway I've been Michaela Loach and my um, social media handles are just at Michaela Loach and I've been Joe Becker and you can find me at Trees and Peace on Instagram Hope everyone has a lovely week and see See you at COP. Bye.